You're listening to And welcome back to Books and Bobo, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Ri Ra Yu. And we're here today to talk about our June 2020 book club pick, Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata, translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori.、Um, yeah. So there's a divisive <laughs>、uh, opinion on this book. And、uh, I'm like really excited to dive into it. Well, a lot of people were questioning our decision、um, to pick this book as a lighter,、um, more,、um, I guess, not dark read. Okay. And- but the thing is, like, our book club pick before that was、uh, Warrior Woman. <laughs> and I think Warrior Woman was darker than Convenience Store Woman. I actually didn't think it was that dark. To be honest. Yeah, me, me neither. But we'll get mean, into it a little bit. Are we, are we the weirdos here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Okay. So、um, without further ado, let's get into our,、um, our discussion. We want to start us off with the book jack description Keiko isn't normal. At school and university, people find her odd, and her family worries she will never fit in. To make them happy, Keiko takes a job at a newly opened convenience store where she finds peace and purpose in simple daily tasks. But in Keiko's circle, it just won't do for an unmarried woman to spend her time stacking shelves and ordering green tea. As the pressure to find a new job, or worse, a husband, increases, Keiko is forced to take desperate action. So the story itself is a slice of life. Um, story about a convenience store worker、um, told from first person perspective、uh, from the main character Keiko. And、um, I guess we can start with just the style of the story because it's very straightforward, right? And that, that's、um, so I don't know if you have this information or not, but is this the style of Sayaka Murata or is this because of the characterization of Keiko as someone who is like atypical? Um, I have not read any of Murata's other works because they haven't been translated. But、uh, from what I've gleaned from interviews, like, she does have a very deadpan style to her writing. It is very straightforward, like you said. And、uh, a lot of her previous novels,、um, because Convenience Store Woman, while it's the first novel to be translated in the States, it's also her 10th novel.、Um, yeah. And- Yeah, like that was really surprising to me.、Um, but like her other novels are, they, they kind of have the same, same themes. Like it's about non conformity in Japanese society,、uh, a take on gender rules and sexuality, and、uh, just like Japanese societal issues on like celibacy and、uh, asexuality. And,、um, There are two books that I'm actually like, I'm really hoping that they get translated because the premise is like, it's so bonkers. <laughs>、um, there's one book called Dwindling World. I don't know what the Japanese title is, but it's set in a dystopia where all procreation is made artificially and sex between a heterosexual married couple is, is considered. To be pretty disgusting. Like they. Oh, yeah. Like、uh, a taboo. It's, 
it's not really a taboo, but it's more of like, it's just like, oh, why are you, why are you doing that? Oh. <laughs> when there's like a better way to like make children, like why would you go through sex? So uh, that's like a really interesting premise to me. And then the other one, um, which definitely sounds like my jam, it's called Satsujin Shusan, and it roughly translate to, uh, translates to birth murder. And this is also a dystopian novel. That's the name where, of my band, my new hard rock band. <laughs> um, it's a dystopian novel where uh, where a person who gives birth to ten children they they get to lawfully murder another person. Damn. Yeah. Right. Like that's like some like battle royale dystopian. I know. Shit, right? It reminded <laughs> me of battle royale, and I was like, I want this book to be translated immediately. I'm and then adapted into a movie. Speaking speaking of like ad- adapting it to a movie, I think Convenience Store Woman would work really well as like a Japanese indie film, or even just like a limited series. You know, like one of the you know how Japanese um, soap operas or TV shows are they're kind of like the BBC where they're pretty like they're 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 short and sweet. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the thing is, like Convenience Store Woman is such a short novel; it's only like. Um, because because of like the size of the hardcover book, it's it's a lot smaller and very very cute. Um, but in the smart in the smaller version, it's like around two hundred pages or yeah. like two hundred and fifty pages. But in like a normal uh, let, letter size uh, paperback, it's like a hundred and fifty pages. So it's more of a novella than an actual novel. Um, but this book was really, really popular. It sold 650,000 copies in Japan. And it won the Akutagawa uh, Prize. Yeah. I mean, I can kind of see why. Because it takes a very, like, humorous look at some of the current, like, issues in Japanese culture, right? Like, um, in Japan right now, they're facing things like celibacy and, um, like, social withdrawal of their younger generation. And, you know, it's been... Largely publicized, like maybe sensationalized. I think it was definitely sensationalized yeah. by like the New York Times <laughs> when, when like, uh, when like the whole like, oh, birth rate, uh, birth rate has gone down to a point where Japanese people will be extinct by like 2050 <laughs> or whatever. And I was yeah. like, that's like, that's ridiculous. But <laughs> yeah, but I think the book kind of digs deeper into that phenomenon and sees it as like not just these are people being weird according to, to societal norms, but these are people that are just outsiders that get their flaws amplified because they're not conforming. Well, the thing is, like, um, they're like misfits, but because there's such a large number of people who are choosing celibacy, who are choosing to not get married, like, are they considered not normal <laughs> according to society because because of like the ratio <laughs> yeah and I, I think that goes into one of the 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 big themes which is the the pressures that societal norms puts on people to be a certain way and how like absurd that also looks if you like look at it objectively and i think that's why it was really important to have a character like Keiko as the point of view character uh, because she's able to see everything objectively and like point out the contradictions of modern society. I really liked Keiko, even though um, some of our Goodreads uh, book club members and, and, and as well as like cr- critics have said <laughs> that she 
Like she kind of comes off as like this deranged, latent serial killer. <laughs> I mean, she definitely has like sociopathic like tendencies. I think, um, you know, she she thinks some dark things, but she's also aware enough to know that she shouldn't act on those things, even though they're logical, right? <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, like I couldn't even like even though her uh, logic for for her problem solving were kind of um dark i found them funny and i also couldn't really combat her logic like when she's <laughs> <laughs> like when she's at her sister's place and like her sister is like my baby won't stop crying and she looks at the and uh she's like keiko looks at the a knife very and simple solution for this problem and it's like, well, it is a very simple solution to the problem. I can't combat that. I mean, you shouldn't go around murdering people, but it's like, it was it was very funny. <laughs> you know, but thinking about it, I think people love a good social path in their stories. I mean, how else do you explain the popularity of shows like Dexter or Sherlock or even Hannibal? Yeah, like I, I know that um, the word like psychopath and sociopath, like they have been argued to be ableist terms mm. um, because it's saying like, oh, like, does that like if you don't have empathy, does that mean that you're not human? Like right. it's like because there are plenty of psychopaths in the world. Psychopath is not a diagnosis, by the way, but uh, like there are plenty of people with like a lack of empathy in the world. And, you know, they have families, they work pretty normal, traditional jobs, doesn't make them serial killers. Um, so, yeah, the, that term has kind of been used to demonize uh, people without empathy. And you see you see in this book that, like, even though Keiko, uh, she is lacking in the empathy department, like she's human, like she. Um, yeah, there's things that she wants, things that she um things that make her happy and or things that make her content with her life right like mm -hmm. yeah um she obviously loves the routine of working in a convenience store she loves being able to you know use her mental observance abilities to like serve customers and i thought it was really interesting that like she like she claimed this multiple times in the story where being a convenience store worker allows her to be a productive cog in society which is what she wants to be right it's what honestly what like all her parents and all her co-workers and all her like friends want for her or want yeah but her. obviously it's uh like obviously it's not enough and it's it's brought up several times in the book um you know they're saying like oh like convenience store workers are usually university students they're either immigrants or people who are in between jobs no one stays at a convenience store for for 18 years yeah and yeah and like that has a lot to do with uh keiko's uh gender as like as a woman because um in in, in japanese society i guess like 36 is not you, you know how people say 30s are the new 20s in america <laughs> like that, that that seems to not be the case in japan it does seem pretty old-fashioned, but, like, I didn't grow up in Japanese culture, so I, so I, I can't speak for that. But definitely in Chinese culture, like, your parents oh, definitely start in freaking Korean out. Culture yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but, like, there's a lot of comments on her being 36. People say, like, hey, like, you should be married with children now. 
if if you can't get like a high paying job, which is still seen as not enough for a woman in right. Japanese society. Yeah. It seems like it's very much like what is portrayed in America in like, you know, the sixties and the fifties, which is like a woman's only job is to get married and have babies. You know, the only reason to get a job is to meet a dude who can support you. And like, there's a very like rigid, like this is what you should, as a woman, these are your aspirations. And if you don't follow these aspirations, you're going to be seen as like a failure, I guess. Um, What really surprised um and also well i'm not surprised but uh the other women aside from keiko in this book they're very much in the same mindset as the men uh they're constantly pressuring her to find a man either through like online dating or uh just anyone who seems half decent (laughs) and uh and it and it's not even like the mention like sex isn't even that big of a deal like in the marriage they're like if you don't want to have sex don't have sex you should be married though that is kind of like uh, what it means to be an adult woman in this world yeah we see gender roles being enforced by members of both genders right both men and women um, are like maintaining the status quo and I mean we see that in in, in you know our real life with like our aunties and whatever. And every time they yell at us for not being married yet, but also like what we see is like this devaluing of like service labor, which to me seems, I mean, I get it. We do it here in the United States too, where we, we devalue all the manual labor that goes into things like our food and our, and our electronics and our just everyday lives, right? Service workers, uh, retail workers, food workers, and things like that. Like people, see these jobs as lesser and like a lot of people tell Keiko you have a college degree why aren't you doing something that makes more money um or like can provide you a more stable life where we're like she's perfectly okay with her income and her life and her her daily routine but she can't say that or else she'll be seen as as like a weirdo you know and like the the frustrating thing is uh you know, they tell Keiko, like, you need to get a better job, you need to get married, but it doesn't really affect them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, like, what is, it's just like, how does her being quote unquote normal affect your life? Because it doesn't. But they're all so excited when she gives them something to gossip about. And I think this is like, I feel like every single character outside of Keiko and maybe Shiraha, who we'll get to later because he sucks, um, they're like the same person. They're just like, they care about Keiko in as much as like she gives them something to talk about, right? Or something to invest in. It also like, like it makes them feel better about themselves. It's kind of like an ego boost. Yeah. It's like, it's like, oh, well my love life sucks even though i have a high paying job and like and, and like get to travel but look at keiko she's been working a minimum wage job for 18 years and hasn't had sex i guess i'm better than her and that's kind of like it's <laughs> yeah it, that's the mindset of of a lot of keiko's uh quote unquote friends cuz i don't consider them to be friends i mean They're which jerks. is <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no one, I think, yeah, and it seems like no one really understands Keiko or even tries to understand her, right? Not, not even the one person that she finds a kindred 
spirit in, quote unquote, um, actually sees her for what who she is, only what she means to them. Like, um, her family doesn't even accept the fact that she's, you know, like atypical. And I think part of that, I wonder how much of that is commentary on just like the lack of awareness or acceptance of mental illness in Japan and how much of that is just... I don't know. I don't know if Keiko uh, is mentally ill. I don't know. She doesn't really fit into any sort of binary, in my opinion. Right. I and mean, also not like... mental illness, but like, you know, um, I guess I don't have the right language like for it, like neurodivergent yeah that's what yeah. i mean <laughs> um there's a quote about um like cake like when mommy mommy mammy i'm not <laughs> sure uh but keiko's sister like she has a breakdown after she comes to keiko's apartment and she finds out that um like she finds keiko's quote-unquote husband Shira, shiraha um just kind of staying in the bathroom <laughs> yeah and and she's just like and 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 um she kind of has a meltdown and keiko says it says in her in, in her inner monologue she's far happier thinking her sister is normal even if she has a lot of problems than she is having an abnormal sister for whom everything is fine for her norm normality however messy is far more comprehensible and like her sister has kind of been by her side her entire life kind of like giving her excuses to come up with uh when she's around company yeah. so she seems more normal which I, I think this is the part of the book that was the most heartbreaking in the book that was mostly pretty like satirical right where it's here's the one person that like, at least in my reading of it keiko thought she can be herself around and like tell her like what she really thinks about things and then she realizes her sister is just like everyone else thinking that she has a problem that needs to be cured. And I think that's that language I think is that really stuck out for me where like her family thought by sending her to therapist by like working with like, you know, a specialist that she could be cured of whatever she has instead of like seeing it as something that's a part of her, right? And I think that's I think that's what I meant when I said like I don't know how accepting like cuz I feel like in general people see things like autism as like a burden and sometimes a curse right and i think that's oh oh yeah like um that's why we have anti-vaxxers like the number <laughs> one reason why like moms here don't vaccinate their children is because of this one really uh terrible study that turned out to be uh fake and was written by a doctor who was deboarded from the medical board uh <laughs> said that vaccines were the cause of autism and uh, that scared a lot of parents because they consider autism to be a curse and a burden. And um, and then, like, even with uh, autistic people who have who seem neurotypical from the outside, who seem like they can navigate uh, society as a neurotypical person, um, if they stim, then that's considered bad because it makes other people uncomfortable. Yeah, because it's just like, oh, why are they shaking their why are they shaking their fingers? Uh, why are they pacing around so much? Like it, it doesn't affect their lives, but it's discomforting to them. So they constantly, uh, you know, like they constantly try to find a quote unquote 
cure for stimming and a cure for autism when really like what needs to happen is society has to be more open-minded and provide more care and uh instead of just like tossing people out who doesn't who who don't fit into like this role that society puts them in or mandates that they be put in and i think that's like i mean that is a central theme of this book which is like there is a place for people like Keiko to be fully functioning members of society. It's just not what society um, is comfortable with. And it's it's just like who cares if you're who cares if you're uncomfortable with it? Just like it like like I said, it doesn't affect your life. Yeah. Um, like. Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, I can see why people found it frustrating uh, that um, everyone keeps telling Keiko to fix herself. But I also, like, you know, I didn't find this book to be dark. I actually found it to be pretty optimistic uh, <laughs> because Keiko is so steadfast in her identity. Um, even though she, you know, she tries in the middle of the, bo- uh, middle of the book to kind of conform herself into society's expectations yeah that's mostly that's mostly because of her sister and uh mostly because you know she's just kind of getting tired with it and the way she conforms is to just build this lie so is she really (laughs) is she really conforming no not really (laughs) well she's conforming in that she is um lying to herself about what really makes her happy which is what seems like everyone else in the book is doing too yeah um i mean let's get to that i mean the central plot or the central like crisis of this book is her um trying to fit into society's expectations in an effort to um get them get people off her back about certain things right so she concocts this um fake relationship type of deal with um another quote-unquote abnormal person um named shiraha who she initially sees as maybe a kindred spirit of someone who doesn't fit in, like someone who's not a um, um what, what was the term? Uh, another foreign object, right, of Japanese society. But then, I mean, it doesn't turn out that he sucks. He sucked from the beginning, but uh, he um she finds a way to um use his suckiness to help her with this scheme that ultimately doesn't work out. But I think a lot of the people who commented on our Goodreads forum and on this book in general were upset more by Shiraha's character than anything else. Yeah. Um, but like it's mentioned a couple times in the book that uh Keiko thinks that he doesn't really buy into a lot of the stuff that he says. Uh he's just parroting a lot of what society says. Oh yeah. And, I mean he's a total yeah. troll. And he's um like one of my favorite things that uh, Keiko says to Shiraha is Shiraha, Shiraha goes on his like Stone Age rant again, right? <laughs> and and then and then he says, "Oh, like convenience store work is more suited towards women." And uh, Keiko says, "This is the twentieth twenty first century. Um, we are not convenience store women or men. We are just convenience store workers." Like everyone is the same once they put on the uniform, and I was like, "Yes." I don't know why it came off as so savage, but I really loved it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much there is to say about Shiraha. He, um, I think you mentioned in our notes, he's really more of a plot device than an actual character because there's no growth in him. He's just like there to, you know, be a tool for Keiko to use as like a beard, I guess, quote unquote, um, for society. And also, I guess he is a representation of another social phenomenon in um, Japan, which is the, um, uh, social withdrawal syndrome or the hikikomori um who are just like people who just want to stay at home all day and like not do anything yeah and um i mean like for a lot of people who want to participate in that kind of lifestyle um like it's just like oh i'm not interested in having sexual relationships or finding like a good job um, they're just not interested. And then there are people like Shiraha who, you know, have who have feelings of inadequacy and uh and fear of judgment. And that's why they hide rather than like yeah. an innate want for it. He seems like kind of a like a poser, right? Like he See, says the thing he- is like if he gets a <laughs> if he gets a good job, he would be fine with it. That's the thing. I don't know if he would be, though, because he wants a good job that pays a lot, but he doesn't want to do any work. And he doesn't want to be hard. He doesn't want anybody yeah. to, tell, to tell him what to do. Like yeah, he- <laughs> yeah. Because, like, his, his whole deal is that he went to university, dropped out, went to technical school, technical school, and dropped out. And the only qualification that he has is, like, an English proficiency proficiency test. It it just seems like he can't finish anything in his life. Like as someone who seems to like reject societal norms and like what people want from him, he seems to want a lot of the same things that society wants him to have. Yeah. Right. Like he, he wants to be seen as like the alpha male, like the, the dominant person in his relationship, even though he, um, doesn't want to work and is okay with Keiko providing for her on her convenience store salary. And Which is like, <laughs> how is that even possible? <laughs> yeah. I guess Japan has better like government aid. So I guess you could live off of welfare plus I, uh, I, have, I, have no, I don't know. I don't know anything about J- uh, Japan's uh, welfare system. I imagine <laughs> it's better. I imagine they probably have some some form of like um, public health care. Yeah. Well, I feel like any other country at this point has better <laughs> has better health care, better government aid. Um, I like I'm just circling back to people finding convenience store workers and uh and like retail workers as lesser. Um, it's kind of strange that. Now in a COVID world, uh, I mean, people still have that condesc- condescension, but like they're essential workers. They're the ones who make our society work nowadays. Like yeah. we would not be able to eat or go to work <laughs> or like we wouldn't be able to do anything um, without uh, without these people who work at grocery stores, for example. Yeah. And especially in Japan where like convenience store culture is like 
it's where a lot of people get their lunches and their meals. I mean, I grew up going to Taiwan every summer and the convenience store culture there is pretty similar to Japan, just down to like the service culture where, you know, when you walk into the store, everyone has to say welcome. Um, everyone has the same kind of like playbook and like how to interact with guests and how to do transactions. And I mean, it's a part of everyday life that like if all of a sudden there were no convenience stores, like society might just collapse, you know? Yeah, and, and convenience stores are different in Asia than in America. Oh, they're so much um, better. Oh my god. They are so much better. But they're <laughs> but but like the thing is like in America, convenience stores are okay, like get your snacks, get batteries. Maybe, maybe if you are adventurous, you'll eat like the pizza that they're serving. <laughs> but but in like Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, uh, you can get clothes at convenience stores. You can get um you can pay your electricity bills. You can buy tickets for museums and concerts. Yeah. Um, you can you can get like your public transport card uh like recharged. Like you uh-huh. can do so many things through convenience stores. And I was actually really surprised when I went to Korea. Um, because like it it the convenience stores have evolved and I and I didn't <laughs> think that it was possible. But they now have like they now have like instant ramen uh, cookers, and oh, yeah. yeah, like and like for for they also have like iced coffee machines, and I was I was so impressed. <laughs> I was like, yeah. why why do we not have these things in America? I mean, the ones in Taiwan have like olden sets, like so you can make hot pot right there at Seven Eleven. Most Seven Elevens in Taiwan have like dining areas for people to eat. Um, it's yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty sweet. Also, their ATM system is like fantastic because <laughs> I remember like I I I had forgotten my wallet uh-huh. and I had to like get Dan to go to a a nearby convenience store and use the ATM there, and I was really worried that it wouldn't work because we you know we have an American <laughs> debit card, but it worked perfectly. Oh, yeah, uh, banks are yeah. multinational. You should know that. Like it's globalism and capitalism at its best. Capitalism—that's another theme in this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the devaluation of um, labor is is capitalism with a capital C. You know. Yeah. And like the terms like cogs of society and foreign objects. There's a certain way success looks, and it's like the capitalist model in this book. You know, get a high paying job. Um, put your head down and work and don't be weird. It kind of reminds me of Severance because Severance <laughs> Severance was also a pretty short book that, you know, it, yeah. its themes were very big on capitalism. And the main character in Severance, she has like this moment where she could quit her job uh, and pursue photography and do what she wants to do in life. But then she gets talked out of it because people are like, what are you doing? You have like a stable job in New York City and uh, you you have this routine. It's not even that hard. Like, why would you give this up? Which I mean, OK, there's a point in time in my life where I would have loved to have a stable job in New York City. Like thinking about it, that's like kind of our own version of like this like societal um like collective consciousness of what success looks like, right? Like, oh, success looks like a tiny apartment in New York City working for a big corporation. 
you know, and that's like the aspiration for a lot of people. A lot of my friends who went into like investment banking, <laughs> like after after their contract is, expired, uh, like for three years, mm-hmm. they were like, I'm done. <laughs> they, they're like, I'm done. I'm going to go to Peru. I'm going to like travel. I'm going to figure out my calling. And yeah, it's honestly, it depends on what you value yeah. in your life. Like if you value stability and you're okay with pursuing other passions on the side well maybe that's for you um (laughs) maybe you don't have a dream and uh you're perfectly fine with working a minimum wage job that gives you fulfillment like that shouldn't make you feel ashamed working is working and uh if you have like i don't know like a disability that prevents you from working full-time or um you just don't want to work because it makes you unhappy there should be an option for people to (laughs) there should be an option for people to like not force themselves to work and pursue happiness but of course in a capitalist society that's not possible yeah you have to be a cog right you have to be a cog and by not being a cog it might cause you to be depressed and uh (laughs) be (laughs) less uh and, and like pursue I, I guess like a solitary lifestyle. And I don't think that's a bad thing either. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the people who show up in the convenience store in the book, they're, you know, they're people who are loners. They buy like you're not going to go to a convenience store to buy food uh, with your friends. You're buying convenience store food because it's fast and you can <laughs> eat it by yourself. <laughs> and again, it's a Japanese convenience store. So all the food is awesome. Yes. <laughs> Um, I did appreciate, um, as someone who used to work in consumer products and merchandising, um, the like the uh, <clears throat> the passages that were dedicated to, you know, like the thought process between how how merchandise is presented to customers to drive sales for promotions. Oh yeah, and, like, like the displays. That, yeah, uh, yeah, and just how Keiko's mind is like hardwired to understand that stuff and it really makes you think like if she wasn't like considered quote-unquote um like i don't even think she's antisocial, but like if she had more traditional ambitions to like raise up in the ranks she could have been like an executive by now for the convenience store right or if um if someone recognizes her abilities and has her be like a consultant for convenience store openings or merchandising going to all the different convenience stores and like fixing their their merchandising displays right like she does have an aptitude for this specific line of work which is on display every time she's at the convenience store yeah like it makes me think that if she had gotten her first job at like say a department store when where she's like selling clothes Mm -hmm. she would have gotten promoted like she would have gotten like more commissions <laughs> like yeah uh, there would have been more upward mobility but because she works in a convenience store like the only promotion she could get is being a manager and um, i don't know why she doesn't get promoted as a manager considering how how long she's been working there obviously because of like her quote-unquote weirdness but yeah just prejudice i guess um, yeah I'm, i think all of the managers were men too in the book the managers were men. I think there was a female supervisor, right? Yeah. I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah. 
Well, there was the one because there was the um more posh lady that she was taking all her fashion cues from. Was she a supervisor though? I'm I'm not sure. I think she was a supervisor. I I don't think uh. she was the store manager, but she was definitely like um like up up in the ranks. Up, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was also uh, pretty interesting how she like mimicked her coworkers' uh, voices <laughs> and expressions and and their clothes to like blend in, and um, how like how like over the years her speech patterns and dress uh, and like dress code has changed because the employees have changed. But she also makes a really great point that like she's not the only one doing this. Oh like, no, everybody does it. Does it. You know. <laughs> Like, um, I think for a while, I, like, is it, is it Californian to say hella? Is that a Californian thing? Um, it's a Northern California thing. Okay, so, <laughs> like, when I lived in the East Coast, I had a friend who, like, lived in California, or who <laughs> had lived in California and had moved to the East Coast, and I picked that up. Mm. Until someone someone mentioned like, hey, why why do you keep saying hella? And I was like, oh snap. I need to stop <laughs> hanging out with this girl. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, every everyone does it. And uh same yeah. thing with like um with like clothing. Uh you know, she sees she sees a supervisor as like the model 30 something year old. And yeah. Yeah. Like everyone and I, does that. <laughs> and I love that she has enough like awareness to know she can't copy her exactly so she takes a look at the brand and finds like a suitable thing that's similar to style but different so it doesn't look like she's actually copying her yeah i wish i could do that in my real life because there's definitely (laughs) close like the thing is i i just turned 30 this year and uh-huh. of course, like that brings a lot of anxieties, but um <laughs> so young. Yeah, whatever, so Marvin. <laughs> I, I'm gonna bring this up later for like women who who turned 30 and were treated differently. But um just I feel I don't feel like I dress like a 30-something year old. Like I feel like I'm still in my mid like early mid twenties because my clothing style hasn't changed that much, but I blame <laughs> it on, I blame it on like economic, uh, you, you know, like I don't have a high income to buy the clothes that are like considered sophisticated and considered fitting for a 30 year old woman. And it's like, <laughs> you I know, mean, Rira, if this book know, has what? taught us anything, it's to, not care about what other people think we should I, we shouldn't be I doing. I oscillate between not not giving a fuck to like <laughs> maybe I should care a little bit about what I wear and how I also, present myself. Also, in a way, you are kind of conforming to what society thinks of us because we are millennials and we are the arrested development generation. So technically, you're not alone. We're all wearing the same clothes we wore in our twenties. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I had mentioned like how like 30 year old women are, are treated differently. Um, mm-hmm. in, in Japan, like it, it seems like there's an age cap for a lot of the jobs. Um, because like they, they mentioned like, oh, you're, you're, th- you're a 36 year old woman. Like there's no way you can get a job anywhere. Uh, cause people kind of expect you to be a housewife. Um, <laughs> That's kind of 
the same in Korea. Like, I was really shocked mm. that uh, that employers can ask women during job interviews if they plan to have children or if yeah. they're married. And Don't they also they require find, pictures? Yeah, they require pictures. And that's why, like, a lot of people get plastic surgery. Um, and it's not, like, a lot of the times, like, people say, like, oh, Koreans get plastic surgery because they want to look like white people. But... Honestly, a lot of people get plastic surgery because that is the only way that they can, like, move up in society, especially if you're a woman, if you're not considered attractive. Like, just so fucked up. It, lookism is real. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, I, w- I was really shocked that, like, employers can get away with that kind of stuff. And um, in, in America, like, there's also... You know, there's also like gender discrimination, like women get paid less, they get passed over for promotions. Um, And also, like, once you are in your late 20s, even you constantly get asked, like, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have children? Um, And you're considered, quote unquote, brave for traveling alone. And they kind of sell you this whole like. Oh, like, oh, you're a strong, independent woman, but also we don't want you to be a strong, independent woman because, <laughs> because it's kind of weird that you aren't interested in well, dating. There was that one quote that um, that you pulled that, um, you know, as she was talking with her friends and they were all taking pity on her because she was doing what she loved, uh, which is being a convenience store worker with no husband or anyone and the quote was here was everyone taking it for granted that i must be miserable when i wasn't and like it's i, I feel like i get that sometimes from uh, married friends or even my parents most of my parents where it's like you know you're not doing something that we think you would be happy and even though you're perfectly fine yeah um i definitely get that a lot from my own family uh, but my own family sucks. So, um, like I like my parents had very high aspirations for me because I am like the oldest child. Mm. But as soon as like I proved to not be not to have the aptitude to go to business school or law school, um, they were like, OK, the only way that you're going to survive is if you marry someone who went to business school, med school, or law school. And um, actually, like, like I had planned to go to a visual arts college um, back when I was in uh, a high school senior. I had, like, prepared portfolios and everything. Uh-huh. And uh, my my parents told me, like, I like... <laughs> My parents told me like, oh, we we are not paying for you to to go to like a specific art college. If you decide to go to uh, just an art college, then we're disowning you. And they were not joking about that, by the way. Wow. Um, but like the and and they were really happy that I got into um, a couple of like actual a couple of like universities, not just art colleges. And uh, once I had gotten into NYU. Uh, they were like, hey, make sure to hang out with the business school students because they're going to make bank once they once they graduate. And uh, unfortunately, they were unfortunately, I disappointed, disappointed them. And by yeah. going to film school, which like I think a lot of people would, you know. I went to one of the best film done. schools in the yeah. country. But the thing <laughs> is, I, I don't work in the film industry now. So that that's another disappointment that they have. But. Um, it just, it, 
it just goes to show like if if you're a woman and you aren't pursuing a certain path where you can get a high paying job the only solution that a lot of um a lot of older Asians try to solve um is to like get married and have children because that's the only way you can contribute to society yeah yeah which i mean it's not obviously not limited to just asian families like you see this in like a lot of families especially rich families i feel like like yeah like you get an mrs degree by going to college (laughs) they're like what are you gonna do with your english or art history degree like (laughs) (laughs) yeah what did you think about Shiraha's um, sister-in-law? Uh, I think she gave a lot of unwarranted advice. Like she prefaces all of her advice as, I know it's not my place to say this and I don't know you all that well, but if you're stuck in this dead end job and you, and, and you stay with Shiraha, you're going to ruin your life. And it's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> like, she she was like leave. every other character outside of Keiko like Voltron into one like one person embodying all of condescending Japanese culture in like a super being uh, <laughs> I mean it's one thing if like Keiko wanted something more than being a convenience store worker but she doesn't so <laughs> I, I mean even if she did want even if she did have more ambitions in life, the advice that Shihara's uh, sister-in-law gives, like, it's it's totally unwarranted. Like, people shouldn't judge people's lifestyles that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it goes back to, like, the central theme of, of this book, which is, like, everyone, everyone is a cog in the machine somehow. And, like, you know, what seems abnormal to them seems just as abnormal to her as like a passive objective observer, like seeing all these people like conform and submit to this idea of what success looks like in society is just as weird as them. Like it's just as weird to her as her being happy at a convenience store job is to them. And there's another quote that you pulled that's, you know, when you work for a convenience store, people often look down on you for working there. I find that fascinating. And I like to look them in the face when they do this to me. And as I do, I always think that's what a human is like. So does that make Keiko more of a human? <laughs> I th- I mean, she is. Yeah, right? I mean, she is. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a rhetorical question. I and, like, as someone who works in in retail, who works at a store like the way some people just treat retail workers and essential workers is just horrible and like the thing is like a, like for a lot of like customers they'll they'll be like oh like you're working this job because like you're a failure and it's like no some people have phds they're just working this job <laughs> because of capitalist society makes them you know they have to like earn a living and it's just like when you look at someone who believes that they're better than you it it just like reveals a lot about themselves and a lot of their own own insecurities because a lot of the times people who yell at like retail workers who boast about how much money they make or how smart they are 
they tend to be, um, I don't know, kind of losers themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not impressing anyone. Yeah. Most people don't need to show off. Yeah. Or you, you shouldn't have to show off to like show how important you are. Yeah. Everybody's worth shouldn't be uh, <laughs> defined by success or how much money you make. And yeah. success should be redefined. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, you know, getting back to the plot, at some point in the story, Keiko quits her job because she needs to, um, I guess, support this illusion that she's marrying Shiraha in this, like, kind of relationship of convenience. And her, like, she ends up just being a shell of her former self. I, I thought that was really sad, like, when she literally loses time, right? Like, she loses weeks after she quits the convenience store. I thought it was fascinating that everyone was so happy for her that she was leaving this job that she loved, right? A lot of preconceived notions about, you know, her. Oh, you're leaving this job to get married or, you know, oh, this is so great for you, even though it's with this guy that we all hate. And that was the weirdest thing. Like when she revealed that she was, you know, dating or in, in a relationship with Shiraha, everyone was so happy for her, even though they all hated that guy. And at the same time, they were just like, you need to get someone better. (laughs) Like, he's not worthy of you. And it's like, but you're so happy that she found someone, anyone. That was wild. I was like, wouldn't your first thing be him? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is why it was so great at the end when, like, she um, decides to you know, go back to her first love, which was the convenience store. I've seen this book described as a love story, a rom-com between a woman and a convenience store. And I think that's pretty apt, right? Like, it follows those same beats where, you know, they're in a happy relationship, something happens that splits them apart. And at the end, you know, in a very dramatic, like, moment, she leaves the person she was going to get married to, which is her new job, to go back to her, you know, original lover that she was happy with, right? It's it's like a... It, it it literally is like a rom-com plot. Yeah, like I didn't think about it that way, but you're right, <laughs> it does follow follow the beats. Um, I thought it was a really interesting way to end the book, like how she's on her way to a job interview and she happens to go into a different convenience store. And uh, <laughs> she's like, she's like, they're not doing their job correctly. And she like fixes everything. And people are like, why is she fixing stuff? Like she doesn't work here. Um and uh and like at the end she's like she at the end she's like i'm not going to this job interview i am a convenience store worker that that is like my identity and i don't need anything else outside of that i am perfectly content with what i am and i think that's like a very like optimistic note and a very like you know i think everybody strives or that kind of contentment. Yeah. So I, like, I know a lot of people on our Goodreads forum uh, said this book was kind of dark. But humorous. And I, like, I don't know. I, I thought it was a pretty light read. Yeah, I did as well. Maybe that says more about us than, than everyone else. Um, Maybe but, we're I mean, so I, cynical with the world, Marvin. That, that I enjoy a good like, dark comedy. I don't know. <laughs> And, I mean, 
she says some like weird fucked up things sometimes, but it never seemed like it was sinister in any way. I mean, the book really is a, it's a comedy, it's a satire, it's a rom-com, but it's not, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't get, I didn't get the darkness as much. I mean, there were dark moments, um, but I think those are more for characterization, right? It's for us to understand her as someone who is like neuroatypical, you know, um, her stories about, you know, finding a dead bird and wanting to cook it and like breaking up a fight by like knocking out one of the kids. Um, I thought, I mean, as, as messed up as those moments were, there it was also pretty funny. Then, you know, like the whole, like we all try, like, I, I feel like everybody is an alien on the inside, you know, like, yeah. I feel like no matter what your job is or where you are in life, I think you can relate to Keiko and you can relate to like that weirdness and uh, the feeling of trying to fit in to belong. Yeah. And maybe examine in yourself ways that you fight against who you really are to fit into society and whether or not that's fair to you and the people around you. Yeah. And I think that's why this book did so well in Japan and also worldwide. Because, um, like, because people can relate to Keiko, like, it is a very universal theme of trying to find belonging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we covered a lot of the book. Um, yeah. I think that's a good place to yeah, I think that's wrap a, up our discussion. Oh, yeah. I, I, will, I will add in uh, two cents here. <laughs> very, very short. Um, uh-huh. Sayaka Murata... Like I like I mentioned before, she worked at a convenience store for 18 years, uh, just like the character, uh, just like Keiko. And um, the main reason why she decided to stay in that job for so long is because the schedule, her work schedule gave her a writing schedule. So she would work from like 2 a.m. to like 6 a.m., and then uh, she would go into work at a convenience store. And after working at the convenience store, she would write more. And it provided <laughs> her, like, this balance. And um, I think she, I, like, I think she quit her convenience store job, like, two years ago. So it wasn't even that, like, long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's... And she's also single. Like, she's not married. Mm. And, you know, I... From I don't know about her sexual relationships. That's not my business at all. But, you know, she seems pretty content with life. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So it feels like a lot of this book, um, whether or not she, um, wh- whether or not um, Keiko is or isn't a, you know, a autobiographical self is rooted in her observations of how I'm sure people have treated her as like one a convenience store worker, two, uh, an older unmarried woman, and three, as an artist, right? Because those are three things that people typically look down on, especially in in modern, you know, capitalist society. Yeah, and um, she she had mentioned that, like, a lot of her story ideas comes from customers that she's seen at work. <laughs> a lot of the observations she's made um, at this minimum wage job helped her get to the privileged position that she's in now. Um, Also, like, I found it interesting because she, like, her process is to draw her characters like a mangaka. 
and then use <laughs> and then use those descriptions to write her prose. Uh, it's a very interesting way uh, to write a book for sure. Uh, but it, it but it makes sense because she grew up reading a lot of manga, like a lot of Japanese people do. And yeah. a lot of the stuff she read was like sci-fi and, you know, like aliens coming to Earth. That was considered normal in the book. So, of course, her <laughs> so, of, of course, her novellas will explore like nonconformity and, you know, have characters who are atypical, neuro, neuro, uh, atypical. So, yeah, like those were my two cents on Sayaka Murata. <laughs> she sounds like I really respect her for for her process and for writing like so many books in such a short time yeah so none of her other books are translated yet right no not yet but Mm, i really but i really want that book that's about (laughs) like being able to murder someone after you have 10 children would you have 10 children just to murder someone though oh god i don't know that sounds like a nightmare I mean, what if you like murder one of your children? Then what's the point? Yeah, what's the point of having one? I don't know. Yeah, um, I guess uh, my final thoughts is I really enjoyed this book. Um, I didn't know what to expect because people were giving like really mixed signals on like the tone of the book, but I found it to be as advertised, like a light, funny read. Were there dark moments? Sure, but they weren't like you know. They weren't stuff that creeped me out. I, I found myself laughing more than anything, um, even though I did get frustrated by um, the the dude bro, um, Shiraha. Um, it was, um, I really enjoyed reading this book. And it was, it was fast. It was like, fast, yeah. It, yeah. It made um, me realize that I need to read more, more short books <laughs> in my life. Uh, I, felt, yeah. I felt so productive that I finished this book and like, like two and a half hours <laughs> yeah. i was like oh man i have like the rest of my day cleared <laughs> and it was a compelling read it was like it was like i didn't find myself struggling to get through it you know yeah yeah okay so our next book club pick our july 2020 book club pick is the widows of malabar hill the first book in the Perveen mystery uh mystery mystery series And it's written by Sujata Massey. Um, And it's a historical murder mystery uh, novel. And we've talked about how much I love historical murder mysteries. Yeah, I was like, we're going back to this well, huh? I'm I'm glad we are. We we are like Marvin and I are pretty dark people. <laughs> we we find apparently joy. <laughs> apparently uh, yeah. we find joy in murder. We find joy in uh, um, commentary on on capitalism. <laughs> I wouldn't say murder. I would say the solving of murders. Solving of murders. <laughs> yes, but it's a it's a book that's set in 1920s India. And um, the main character is one of the first lawyers in India. One of the first uh, female lawyers, sorry, in India. Mm. So I'm very interested in reading it. I have heard great things. But again... this would still be colonial India then, huh? Yeah, I think think so. I don't... 1920s. I don't think they were granted independence until like after World War I. Hmm... I'm not sure. We'll, I don't, we'll, we'll I, find I'm not out when, when we're reading the book. 
yeah i'm excited um always glad to see like i'm excited to meet whoever this new um um detective is lawyer investigator i mean they're all detectives i I guess so (laughs) i actually like most of the murder mystery books that we've read for this book club all of the investigators were not police detectives that's true i mean to be fair neither was sherlock so that's true yeah was poirot was he a was he a cop i don't think so yeah a consultant (laughs) well i'm excited to read this book and um excited to um and and excited to have read uh, convenience star woman by sayaka murata um again translated by Ginny tapley takamori um and a great translation too. I, I I don't know how much um of the style was hers and how much was Sayaka's, but definitely um definitely a good read. Um thank you to Ria for, for recommending it. And um uh, thank you for recommending a book that was short and sweet, but was able to um generate a lot of conversation, which is the sign of a good book. Yep. You know. All right. And with that, that'll also do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye, right, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace. Peace.